Welcome to Kiana's Conversations. Uh, I'm delighted today to welcome Rob Harley. Rob is a senior investment analyst with Stuart Investors with a, a particular interest in sustainable investment. Um, and just I think it's important to note that uh, one of his earlier experiences was as head of the Students' Representative Council at Natal University in 1994, which was was actually the election year in South Africa. And I'm sure Rob will make reference to that as we go about our conversation. So Rob, so Rob, welcome. I, I you know, you've had some insight into what the questions are uh, this afternoon. And I'd, I'd like to start then with this, this notion that wise leaders see alternative perspectives. So could you describe a time perhaps when you were trapped in a single point of view as a leader that prevented you from achieving your goals? Oh, thanks, Don. It's good to be with you. Um, you mentioned my my experience on the Student Representative Council, my, my involvement in student politics in South Africa at a difficult time. Um, what, one of the things that I felt so strongly was that uh, in order to be elected to the Student Representative Council, you needed a mandate from a constituency. And so that mandate came from an, from an organisation with its own particular interests and and points of view and yet you were you know i found myself on a structure whose purpose was to make decisions that were for the good of the student body as a whole and it always struck me that there was a contest uh, as at some at some points it was an acute contest and at other times less so but there always seemed to be some contest between uh, representing the views of the group that gave you a mandate and trying to reconcile those views with a notion of what might be... So who were those two would, groups? Would, Let's be, would more, be, be better. more explicit. Tease that apart Well, it's specifically, I, I got my mandate from, a, from an organisation which was effectively aligned with the ANC. So we had a, a particular political agenda. Um, and, and these contests manifested sometimes in the smallest decisions. For example, we were involved in the decision to... Um, select uh, the provider of catering services for all the university campuses and and there immediately you you got into a consideration of what would be in the economic interests of the most disadvantaged students uh, the poorest students versus perhaps the interests of those students who wanted to see more choice and you ended up having to make decisions which would be applied across the university they would only select one one provider of accommodate of of catering services mm. and and there was always a, an underlying tension there between the common good the perspectives of of uh, of those groups that that might embody the idea of of the whole and those interests of the group that had put you there to represent them now it would be fair to say it you would have been unusual i, I guess at that time to be a white man representing the ANC Yes, I mean, I wouldn't say we were representing the ANC per se, but yeah. we, we, we were certainly aligned with the ANC. Um, you know, we were part of that, that, that uh, grouping within the student body of the, of the political spectrum that, that, in, that was trying to champion the interests. In of, some senses, though, you must have been stepping outside, if you like, what the expectation might have been with a, people of a similar ethnic background. Yes, there were there were a few of us who you know who, who who felt that way. I mean, you you either you either decided that you 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 wanted to oppose the system that was there, um, and, and that you were willing to you know 
put put your energy behind behind a cause um that that would represent that kind of opposition or you decided that you were comfortable or willing to go along with it or perhaps that you were apathetic and didn't want to do anything about it um my my interest was in was in in trying to make a, a difference in whatever small way i could mm. that's remarkable which leads us on perfectly i think to the next question i don't know if you'll make, be making reference this year but why this notion that wise leaders make courageous and, and importantly ethical decisions and seeing those two as combined. So can you think of an occasion where you took a courageous and ethical decision that has had a, gone on to have a powerful influence upon how you, you, you now lead your life? You know, I, what strikes me first is, is recognising the moment at which I think I was old enough to comprehend that I was witnessing uh, the making of a very courageous decision by a leader and that was when I saw footage um, on television when I was 12 years old this was in the middle of 1985 Um, some remarkable footage it was a very troubling time in South Africa Um, there was a lot of violence Um, it, it was a very edgy time for the country there was a state of emergency there was censorship news blackouts um, the state was really trying to flex its muscles in its final death throes, I think. Um, and there were a lot of people dying and there, there were funerals every weekend in, in the black townships. And there was a remarkable bit of footage of a, a funeral that took place in a township called Deduza outside of Johannesburg. And Archbishop, Archbishop Desmond Tutu um, stepped off the stage at a point at which a group within the crowd, a group of young men, um, decided that they would turn on someone they thought was a police informant and necklace this person. And necklacing was a practice that involved um, binding a person's arm, arms up in a tire, which then went round their neck, uh, and the tire would be doused in fuel and set alight. It's a terribly brutal way um, to, you know, to, to, to kill people, but it was... It was symptomatic of the sense that order had broken down and the vigilante justice. Um, but the footage was Archbishop Desmond Tutu as a very small figure, you know, in his purple cassock, jumping off the stage and his arms flailing as he went through this crowd to try and save this person who was being necklaced. And it was just so powerful to see somebody showing such physical bravery in such a difficult situation. And it occurred to me that that kind of physical bravery could only come from such deep inner conviction and an almost reflexive sense of the need to do right and what that meant in a moment like that where most people would struggle to think clearly, but he didn't. And he managed to save this person. And from that moment onwards, I always followed Archbishop Desmond Tutu and developed an interest in in everything that he thought and did and and what a remarkable figure all through decades uh, you know championing so many different causes but always enlightened causes i think and did that courageous behavior go on to have an impact on your own behavior i guess it did in terms of the roles that you you adopted at university did you see these as courageous activities in your own part uh, i'd like to think so yeah. um you know, not not necessarily courageous to anything like the same extent, but I think recognizing the power of of being driven by conviction and principle, 
um, and, and recognizing that that might give your life meaning in a context in which uh, it, it was difficult to feel positive about the society that you were in and mm. the way that that society was heading. You know, it felt like something purposeful that you could do to, to try and stand up for for things that seemed right in a context of profound injustice. Mm. Um, and obviously, if you become a you know you become a student on a campus, you find the avenues which were open to you, mm-hmm. which in my case were being involved was being involved in student politics. And do you find yourself? This might seem a bit trite, given how serious the conditions were there. But do you find yourself tapping into that experience even now? All the time. Really. Um, all the time. Um, I mean, I was pretty young um, when I when I found myself in positions of leadership responsibility. I, I almost felt like um, I lost control of the script to some extent. Um, things happened quite quickly. Um, and before you know it, you're in positions of responsibility and having to make um, difficult decisions. You know, 1994 was a very difficult time. And in our province, it was it was a difficult time because there was a great deal of violence. I mean, it wasn't clear that the election was gonna happen in a peaceful way. Um, so there was a great deal of contestation. Um, so, you know, d- having to grapple with difficult decisions, having to um, try and comprehend what it might mean to do the right thing and what the trade-offs might be and uh, to make decisions about where you would choose, um, you, you know, to fall down uh, or, or, to, or to allow your decision to land. And, and did you come under any personal threat yourself? Uh, y- yes, I did. I mean, there were there were remnants of the security apparatus operating at the time, um, w- which seemed to be quite rudderless. Um, I, I'm not sure whether they were always acting with um, sort of guided, malicious intent, mm. but there were a lot of displaced security personnel and... It, it wasn't that uncommon for uh, academics who were opponents of apartheid or um, student leaders to uh, come under threat. Um, and, and you could never quite work out whether they were just idle threats or whether there was something behind them. But even if they were idle, it always felt menacing because why would someone bother with yeah. you? Yeah. You know, um, it made you wonder. No, I think it, it makes many of us who've who've led our lives and like to think we've made courageous leadership decisions um, um, question just how courageous we were really being in comparison to someone like yourself in those conditions. So if we move on to the next question, though, which is uh, about wise leaders enabling others, can you describe an occasion in your career where you mistakenly kept power to yourself rather than enabling others? Definitely. Um, w- when I moved over to the UK... Um, I found myself working in the finance industry. I'd never planned to do that. Um, But I also found myself in a situation where I was asked quite early on to build a team and to manage that team. And I was trying to reconcile my experiences of uh, leadership, if you like, in in a very contested, difficult student context with a very corporate structure where the emphasis seemed to be less on leadership and more on managerialism. Mm -hmm. And uh, I found that an awkward process. Um, And I was young and inexperienced. And when I look back on it, I do think that at times I was uh, less willing to enable others 
to flourish and a less encouraging of of the need for people to develop and grow um because I was trying to set my expectations around what I thought the corporate structure wanted. And I think this is really interesting that regardless of the experiences that you'd had, the significant leadership experience that you'd had uh, elsewhere, moving into a corporate structure can sometimes just force us to conform conform in a particular way. Yes. That doesn't necessarily get the best out of people. Yes, and I it's it's difficult when you feel that you've been given responsibility and you you want to live up to that responsibility. Mm. But at the same time, you also feel as if you're on quite a tight rope and your room to explore and encourage and, and encourage and allow people to flourish. And how would you say you've shifted since that time? Um, a, 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 quite a lot, I hope, uh, in the sense that um, I think I gradu- gradually realised that if you want to make pros- uh, progress in any endeavour, in, in any organisation, um, you almost have to put the corporate script right aside if there is a corporate <laughs> script. Um, and you have to try and focus on the fundamental important questions, come back to questions of principle, mm-hmm. um, come back to questions of of values and behaviours and say, well, what is it that we want to achieve mm-hmm. here? And forget the corporate code. Yeah. Um, just try and focus on trying to create a healthy, positive environment in, in which we can all flourish and support each other. I'm sure there are many leaders nodding their head as they listen to that. So we'll move on to the, the, the next question, which is that wise leaders create a sustainable future. Can you, so can you think about an occasion where you were so focused on a short-term goal that it perhaps actually damaged the long-term sustainability of what you were trying to do? Again, I would go back to my, my student days. Really? Um, and and you know early on uh, in the in the year of 1994 we knew that we were being watched um closely that you know that the, the that the program that we put in place as a student representative council was being watched closely and i think i felt that quite acutely because i was a white person in a position of leadership at a time when they needed to be changed and the big buzzword at the time was transformation. You know, this, mm. there was this nascent idea that university campuses had to evolve and, and change quite significantly. And, and all of this operated under the rubric of transformation. But none of us really explored properly what that meant. But we needed to signal that we had positive intent in that regard. And we, we orchestrated a, a campaign um, to to transform the university council which was the senior decision making body mm-hmm. the highest decision making body in the university and it was symbolically powerful you know you start with the pinnacle of the structure mm-hmm. um where the vested interests seem to be strongest and i i don't think that that wasn't worthwhile mm-hmm. but i think that we were picking off an easy target um to be seen to be taking action and actually, a, a, a much more productive thing would have been to initiate a whole process of debate around what transformation really meant mm. in a context like that. Mm. And how as students, we saw universities evolving in a changing society and, and what we would try and champion. But we took the shortcut. We did the thing that was symbolically significant. I think, again, all too often, I think we see organisations taking the, still taking these symbolic routes 
and claiming that things have transformed where under the underlying culture, the underlying behaviours haven't shifted at all. But there is a claim made of transformation just either because of a structural element or a, or a, a small number of, of um, externally obvious features. So I think that's very interesting that you picked up on that. Mm-hmm. So wise leaders are self-aware. When did you start to become self-aware of your own assets, your biases, even your limitations as a leader? And what impact did that have? Uh, I can talk quite easily about the limitations. <laughs> um, I, I think the first thing I realised was that um, I, I've, I've often had a tendency to overcomplicate things. Mm. Um, I've always loved the little aphorism from Friedrich Nietzsche. It's a beautiful aphorism. He said, all truth is simple. Is that not doubly a lie? And I was, I was very attracted to that that little aphorism. Yeah. I thought it captured a great deal, and I, I've I've always believed that that there are so many layers of complexity and nuance mm. in in most aspects of human endeavor, and certainly when it comes to organization. Mm. Um, you know, human beings are complex creatures, and organizations are complex organisms. Um, but I think that sometimes the the focus on trying to understand that complexity almost can leave you paralyzed. You know, at a certain point you have to make a decision um, and that decision will be imperfect. And I think I've realized that, you know, the, the existence of gray doesn't necessarily disprove the existence of black and white. Sometimes mm-hmm. there is black and white. So that tendency to overcomplicate things sometimes hampered an ability to move towards decisions or to help others move towards decisions. Um, and then more recently, maybe a reluctance to lead, mm. um, which was born of my sort of corporate experience where I became quite disenchanted with the idea of management. Yeah. And I started to conflate it with leadership. And I thought, well, this is what this is what being in positions of leadership means. And that's not for me. Yeah. And that made me reluctant to take to, to want to take responsibility um, and perhaps to give whatever it is I have to offer. Um, mm. And then at various points in time, I also think I've been slightly hampered by, you know, a desire to seek consensus. But more than that, also a desire to be seen to be doing things that other people approved of yeah. you know that basic human need to want to be like yes. um, I think that that sometimes hinders uh, decisions being as maybe courageous as they need to mm. be so here's a really tough question okay go for it what are you really good at as a leader I think I'm pretty good at being able to put myself in other people's shoes right um and understand different perspectives and sometimes to be able to see a way to coalesce those different perspectives and mm. to find that kind of consensus um i i think i'm in in those sorts of situations i'm a, a natural peacemaker or at least i have a desire yeah. to want to seek consensus yes, and yes. and make peace and i i i do think that you know, an African experience and and an experience in student leadership at at that time, trying to find consensus was so vital. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that has stayed with me. Do you you think you've modelled yourself at all on Nelson Mandela? Consciously or (laughs) unconsciously? 
Um, no, I, I, I mean, I, I admired him greatly. Um, but you could also see that he was able to feed off a mythology which was hugely supportive of, um, you, you know, his ability to 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 make courageous decisions. And that's not to take away from mm. the 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 enormity of the decisions that he did make. I mean, they were immense decisions, uh, and they were very big-hearted decisions. But I think that he had. I think that he had great tailwinds. Um, mm. You know, he he he'd become a mythological figure by dint of being locked up for twenty five years and being the person that everyone wanted to see. And so, yeah. you know, he was he 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 was welcomed as a savior when he came out. Mm. Um, I I think I perhaps admired um, Desmond Tutu more. Really? Yes. Yeah, because yeah. I think he, for me, he was more accessible, you know, mm -hmm. in the, in the 1980s and early 1990s, he was there, he yeah. was in the thick of it. He was never in a, a position of political leadership, but he was hugely inf influential. And I loved his, his range, you know, mm -hmm. he, he took up the cause of so many things that as, as I said at the beginning were enlightened, you know, calling for, women to be ordained in the Anglican Church, championing gay rights. Um, you know, more recently he's he's championed um, assisted suicide. Um, very bold stances that he's taken on such a wide range of issues. And I've always felt it's it's been anchored in a in a very deep abiding philosophy and a view of life and his ability to reconcile spiritualism with, with well he, he sounds like he influenced you when a 12 year old but he still sounds like he's influencing you now yeah for sure that's great that's great yeah, he's a wonderful man so we, we've mentioned the common good um, already but let's just zero in on this the notion that that wise leaders do search uh, for the common good so could you highlight a situation where the common good was potentially being compromised and and what was the impact of that? And the whole apartheid experience in South Africa. I mean, it was so it was so patently obvious that you you had a minority um, that was acting out of fear and had created a system that could only be perpetuated by force and suppression um, and indignity. Um, and so the whole system was antithetical to a notion of the common good. And then in opposition to that, you had a liberation movement, if you like, that was um, galvanizing itself around, well, at the time it was the Freedom Charter, but, but a, a notion of the common good that was quite clearly articulated. Um, and so there was a, there was a very clear, broad-based societal conflict um, between those that wanted to work against the common good and, and, and those that had a notion of what the common good might be. And, and you know, the, the gap between those things was the change that, that had to happen. And of course, then you realise that actually the people that, that carry the notion of the common good are not always that good in, in, at enacting it. Mm. And Bishop Tutu himself became a, a very outspoken um, critic of, of the ANC. Um, you know, so I, I, I feel as if I kind of grew up with a massive contest between that notion of the common good and the inability to enact it, um, both 
by the apartheid state and then later on by the, by those that were the liberators. Mm. And I, 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 again, just to take us back to Mandela, was it was it as remarkable as it appeared to some of us that that Mandela, having been in that, obviously being part of the, and, and part of the majority, but the suppressed majority, when coming into power, was able to demonstrate forgiveness towards those who had suppressed them, or, or am I am I wrong in suggesting that? No, I, I, I don't think we could ever downplay um, the enormity of that. I mean that that was a that was an act of humanity, um, the the likes of which we probably won't see because it had such enormous mm -hmm. ramifications. I think beneath it, obviously, there was a political calculus. You know, the Indeed. the the fact that that transition happened was because the apartheid state had reached the end of the road. Mm -hmm. I think to some extent the liberation movement had reached the end of the road. Um, its backers were, were disappearing as, as you know, the Soviet Union crumbled and so on. So there was a definite political calculus there that impelled people to seek a solution. Yeah. But nonetheless, I mean, there were so many different ways in which that solution could have played yeah. out. Yeah. And the fact that it was... The fact that it was a peaceful solution defied the expectations of most of us who had grown up in the country expecting some kind of revolution. But it was also, it, it, it was that act of deep humanity and the courage to, mm. to embody that, you know, to, to put forward an idea of, of a humanity, a common humanity that could be sought and, and searched for. And, and found was, it was extraordinary which leads us to uh, the last question for our conversation which has been fascinating uh, is that wise leaders make sense out of complexity you've, you've touched upon this a little bit but could you give us an example of where you've um, you've observed um, someone making sense out of complexity that, that led to making a positive difference uh, yes um, I, w I would talk about my, my good friend Willie McGee Willie McGee, yeah. yes, please. A good Scott. Um, so after I'd worked in the finance sector for 10 years, I took some time out and study again, and, and I ended up uh, working in the sustainable development sector, and that led to a chance to um, help establish and, and, and grow a, 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 ch a charity that was doing international development work, um, which was a wonderful experience, but I... I I fell into a partnership um, with Willie McGee and a few other people. Um, and, and Willie is an extraordinary person because um, he, 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 he never suppresses nuance. He always likes to tease nuance and complexity out um, of situations. So he never brutalizes situations and overrides complexity. And yet he has an amazing ability to reach a point where he'll go, right, we, we see the complexity here, let's make a decision. So, you know, I was lucky enough to work alongside him for, for eight years and to benefit from and experience um, his ability to cut through that complexity, mm. um, but without ever suppressing it. And, you know, he would always say, we're going to make a decision here and that decision is going to be imperfect. Um, and there are going to be some trade-offs here, but we have to make a decision. And I, 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 that, that, that will stay with me forever, I think. Just say that again, because I think so many leaders to really need to realise this. 
there is no such thing as a perfect decision. All decisions in some way or another are imperfect. Mm. But I think to have the confidence to say that actually empowers other people, if we can use that phrase. So, yes, I do like the sound of that. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, and, and I think that not, not, not very little of what we talk about when we talk about leadership matters mm. unless it manifests in that decision. Yeah. And that willingness to be as open as you can about what's led to that decision is ultimately going to yeah. determine whether people have confidence in it or not. Well, you and I were speaking earlier about this notion of the common goods, and I think for all the philosophical dimensions of it, the common good only actually comes into action when a decision is being taken. Absolutely. So it is this notion of yeah. whether it be a courageous, hopefully it would be a courageous and ethical decision, but notions of the common good only come into action when that decision is being taken. So I, I, that was a been a very interesting exploration with you earlier today. So, final question. Um, mm -hmm. Who would be the one person in your life, could be a family member, could someone that you worked with, that you would describe, subscribes or uh, certainly um, fulfills the majority? Because I think we've, we would say that wisdom is something that we can all ever aspire to. It's it's, it's certainly not something we can ever claim for ourselves, but who would be the one person in your life that you think lived out most of these characteristics? The characteristics of a wise leader. Of yes. a wise leader. Um, when you say in my life, do you mean close to me? Or? I'd, I would like you to try and connect with someone that you have had personal dealings with, yes, rather than mm. a figure from history. Um, well, I, I think it would be my father. Really, uh, who, you know, is has never would never fancy himself as a as a leader, mm -hmm. but I've I've seen the attributes, the behaviors, um, in him that that I admire, um, and that, you know, reflects that that sort of blend of, um, sense of purpose, sense of principle, courage, um. You know the the ability to see other perspectives, which mm. is is empathy. I think, mm. um, um, you know, and w without that, I I don't think you have the imaginative possibility to actually make decisions which are going to be, in any way, reflective of the common good. Um, so yeah, I I think I've I've always had a, a, a sort of an understated example through the closeness I've had with my with my father Ken. Rob, that's a wonderful note to finish on. I think uh, you're very fortunate to have your father, Ken, and I think he's, he's done a great job in terms of yourself. So thank, thank you, you very Dan. much. Thanks. Bye. Cheers.